Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of the second book of Samuel, chapters 9 through 11. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Welcome today to our discussion of David and the Psalms to Samuel, chapters 9 to 11, and several penitential psalms, including that great Psalm 51. Miserere Deus, in Latin, have mercy on me, O God. This is our theme today. God, have mercy on me for your goodness, in the words of David in Psalm 51. All of these psalms are penitential psalms, but what God looks at, what he calls David more than once in the scriptures, is a man after God's own heart. That happens when one repents, when one feels remorse for sin, maybe even cries with remorse after sinning, like David today, like Peter who went out and wept bitterly after denying Christ three times. In contrast to Saul, who took his own life, never repenting that we know of, and Judas, who took his own life. We don't know of his repentance either. Of course, that's for God to judge. But you see the contrast with a man who repents. A man or a woman who repents is a man after God's own heart. Repenting of wrongdoing and then living with the suffering of the consequences that always follow sin. Sin's never done in isolation. Sin always affects the body of Christ. So God have mercy on me for your goodness. Sin is, of course, due to our original woundedness. We have all sinned. St. Paul told us last year, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul also told us that there is none righteous. No, not one. Not one of us here has not sinned. And Jesus knew that too. In John 8, the woman caught in adultery, what does Jesus tell the men who want to stone her? Let he that is without sin cast the first stone. They walked away one by one. Jesus knew they would because there's no one without sin. Now in the rabbinic tradition, they had four men that they thought were without sin. Jesse, David's father, was one of them. They say that Jesse died without sin. Four men in the rabbinic tradition. The others are Benjamin, the youngest son of Jacob. They say his name is son of my days, son of my olden days, Jacob's youngest son from Rachel. And he is one that they have recorded was just such a righteous man that he died without sin. And Amram, who was the father of Moses, the father of Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He was married to Jochebed and he lived to be 137 years old. They say Moses' father was without sin. He was such a holy, 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 righteous man. He's listed in the Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. Amram is the parent of Moses that was not afraid of the king's edict. Pharaoh said, drown all the children. These parents were not afraid. They let their child live. The other sinless one is Chiliab, who happens to be the son of David's wife, Abigail. Now, you know, we've been we've studied Abigail and she had a son named Chiliab, but it was not sure his ancestry if he belonged to Nabal her husband, the fool, or to David. Chiliab, though, was very, very righteous. 
His name Chiliab means perfection of the father, and they say that he looked exactly like David. But his ancestry couldn't be proven 100%, so the Hebrews were very, very, very cautious about ancestry, especially in the line of David. So Jesse, Benjamin, Chiliab, and Amram are the ones the rabbinic tradition says are sinless. Now, Jesse did not have a Jesse tree lineage all by himself, did he? It takes two to tango, right? Jesse had a wife, and there is a woman who provided her ovum many times for Jesse's great tree. David had to have a mother. Her name is never, ever mentioned in the scrolls of the Old Testament. Don't you find that interesting, ladies, especially? <clears throat> Did you ever wonder who was the wife of Jesse and the great King David? Who's his mom? Well, there's always a woman behind a man, behind sinless Jesse. There was a wife. Jesse was considered sinless. He must have had one amazing wife, don't you think, ladies? In Jewish sources, David was an afterthought among Jesse's sons and called the stone that the builders rejected. Hmm. Listen to what David says about his early years in the Psalms that he wrote, David's prayers to God. David writes, the stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Those are David's words originally. The builders seem to be referring to David's own family rejecting him. Why would this be? These scriptures imply that David was rejected as a child by his family. Psalm 27, David writes, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me up. David writes in Psalm 69, I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. He writes, for zeal for thy house has consumed me. And he's not talking about the temple because the temple hasn't been built yet. The insults of those who insult thee have fallen on me. I have made sackcloth my closing. I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of all those who sit at the gate. The drunkards make up songs about me. This is in David's childhood. Thou knowest my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to thee. Insults have broken my heart and I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. This is in David's childhood. These things happened. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel came to Jesse and he said, are these all the sons you have? And his father replied, well, they're still the youngest. He's tending the flock. And Samuel said to Jesse, send someone to bring him, for he will not sit down. We will not sit down to eat until he gets here. They will not sit down to the sacrificial feast until this other son gets here. Where is he? David was not initially invited to the sacrificial feast when Samuel, the great prophet, came to visit their family in Bethlehem. David was not invited to the sacrificial feast, and David went home from the feast, the anointed one. Remember? The stone that the builders rejected had become the chief cornerstone. Why was David's family rejecting him in his early life? You've got to wonder. Well, there's a midrash, a Jewish explanation that says David had a very complicated conception. David's Jesse, David's father, had been separated from his wife for three years. And this is really important because we have to study scripture in context. And these Old Testament scriptures aren't ours. They are Jewish writings. Why? Why did he have a complicated conception? It's explained that Jesse was very concerned that since the Torah forbade marrying someone from Moab, his ancestor Boaz should have been forbidden from marrying Ruth the Moabite. No Ammonite or Moabite, says the Lord in Deuteronomy 25, even to the 10th generation shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. 
So Jesse, guess what he did? His job, he was the head of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Torah law. And one, he was one of the most distinguished leaders of his generation, extremely righteous, driven by the law of God. And Jesse was a man of such greatness that the Talmud, Shabbat 55b, observes that Jesse was one of the only four righteous individuals who died solely due to the instigation of the serpent, only because death was decreed upon the human race when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge at the serpent's instigation, not due to any flaw of his own. Remember, Jesse was one of those four righteous ones. He was the head of the Sanhedrin. He knew the law like the back of his hand. It's like the Supreme Court. They interpret the oral law and the written law. There had been a debate raging ever since Boaz forbade, Boaz, the, the Old Testament forbade male Moabite converts to marry into Judaism or female Moabite converts to marry into Judaism. And remember, Boaz took it from the oral tradition that that was only meant for males, that females like Ruth could marry Boaz. Remember that? Even though it had been decided on a ruling, Jesse, due to his great righteousness, was still concerned that perhaps the halakha was not so, the letter of the law. And he, now Jesse, with Moabite blood from his grandmother Ruth, would consequently be forbidden from marrying into the Jewish people like his pure Jewish wife, because Jesse had Moabite blood in his lineage. Therefore, out of love for his wife and out of love for the law, he separated physically from his own wife, who had already bore him seven sons. So she was a pure Jew in the bloodline, but perhaps Jesse was not because of Ruth's Moabite DNA. Ruth was Jesse's grandmother. So this was a great sorrow, and here's her name for Nitzavet. Nitzavet, Jesse's wife. That is her name, and it means to stand or to take a stand. She had already given him seven sons, and now he's saying that they must separate. To be separated from her husbands and her sons, whom she loved because of a legal technicality of Hebrew Torah law that had already been settled by righteous Boaz in his interpretation. But now Jesse's questioning it in the Sanhedrin. So remember back in Ruth 4, Boaz set everybody down at the city gate and the next in line to redeem Ruth after her husband died, he was offered it and he said, I can't redeem it. And so Boaz said, I will. And Boaz became the kinsman redeemer. Remember, he took Ruth as his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. What you don't know from the scripture, and the Hebrews have it in their oral tradition, that Boaz died the next night after he impregnated Ruth with Obed, who became Jesse's father. Now, he died the next night, and the Jews took that as a sign that this was not to be done many of them. The Torah scholars, the lawyers called the scribes, argued that perhaps Ruth, who was a Moabite, even though a female convert, could God have rejected the bloodline union of Boaz and Ruth? And a seed of doubt was publicly raised about Jesse's heritage, and that stuck in Jesse's mind. Jesse was questioning whether or not his bloodline was pure enough because his grandmother Ruth was Moabite. So this is the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And this is what the scribes would argue about. They were lawyers of the of the scriptures. And Jesse had a lot of scrupulosity, I would say, about this. It's all he could think of. It's all he could think of. He was so righteous. He wanted to do everything right. He wanted to be perfect for the Lord. So serving in the Sanhedrin, Jesse began to entertain personal doubts about his own personal ancestry. 
Now, a lot of years passed, and Jesse longed for a child again whose ancestry would be unquestionable. His plan was to engage in relations with his Canaanite maidservant. Sound familiar? He said to her, I will be freeing you conditionally. If my status as a Jew is legitimate, then you are freed as a proper Jewish convert to marry me. If, however, my status is blemished and I have the legal status of a Moabite convert forbidden to marry an Israelite, I'm not giving you your freedom, but as a Shifkanat Nanit, the Canaanite maidservant, you are, you may marry a Moabite convert. What this means is that Jesse had found a loophole in the law, and it's a very difficult one to explain but it's called this Shifka Kanayanit. As a wife, she and any children he fathered would remain the possessions of the masters whose they are. It's an echo of Abraham with Sarah's Egyptian maidservant, Hagar. The maidservant, the Canaanite maidservant of Jesse, Nitzvet's maidservant, was aware of this anguish that her mistress, Nitzvet, Jesse's wife, was in. She understood the pain of being separated from her husband for so many years, and she knew that Nitzvet was longing for more children of her own. And the empathetic maidservant secretly approached Nitzvet and informed her of Jesse's plan, suggesting a bold counterplan. Let us learn from your ancestress and replicate their actions, switching places. Let's switch places tonight like your ancestors, Leah and Rachel did. Remember that? And so with this prayer on her lips, the, her plan succeeded. Nitzvet took the place of the Canaanite maidservant that night, and Nitzvet, Jesse's own wife, conceived again with Jesse. But Jesse remained unaware of the switch. After three months, Nitzvet's pregnancy becomes obvious. She begins to show. And her seven sons are incensed because her parents are separated. And they wish to kill their adulterous mother, and the thought of this illegitimate fetus that she carried. Nitzvet, for her part, would not embarrass her husband by revealing the truth of what had actually occurred. Like her ancestress, Tamar, who prepared to be burned alive rather than to embarrass Judah, Nitzvet chose a vow of silence. And like Tamar, Nitzvet would be rewarded for her silence with a child of greatness who would forever be in the line of the Moshiach, the Messiah. Now, unaware of the truth behind his wife's pregnancy, but having compassion on her, he's a righteous man, remember, like Joseph from the house of David. Jesse ordered his sons not to touch their mother. Do not kill her. She deserves to be stoned to death, but do not kill her. She's pregnant. But instead, let the child that will be born be treated as a lowly and despised servant. In this way, everyone will realize that his status is questionable and that as an illegitimate child, he will not marry an Israelite. From the time of his birth onward then, Nitzvah's son was treated by his brothers as an abominable outcast. Now, think of that backdrop. It's important to know in context. Eventually, the entire line of Jesse was questioned, the basis of the original law, the Moabite convert law. People claimed that all the positive qualities of Boaz were manifest in Jesse and his illustrious seven elder sons, and that all the negative traits from Ruth the Moabite clung to this despicable youngest child who lived with Jesse's wife, Nitzvet. Noting the conduct of his brothers, the rest of the community assumed that this youth, David, was a treacherous sinner full of unspeakable guilt. On the infrequent occasions that Nitzvet's son David would return from the pasture to his home in Bethlehem, young David would be shunned by the townspeople. In If something was stolen or lost, David was always accused as the natural culprit. In order, He ordered, in the word of the psalm, to repay what I have not stolen. 
So when David writes like this in the Psalms, the insults of those who insulted me have fallen on me, that I'm a byword to them. I'm the talk of everyone who sits at the city gate. The drunkards make up songs about me. My reproach and my shame and my dishonor, insults have broken my heart. I'm in despair. I'm a stranger, which the word in Hebrew is I'm a mamzer to my brothers, an alien. And a mamzer is a Hebrew euphemism for someone born in an illicit union in the person's lineage. He was thought to be a mamzer since Jesse had been separated from his wife at the time she conceived a child. No one else knew this is Jesse's child. I've become a stranger, a mamzer to my brethren, an alien, a foreigner to my mother's sons. They rejected J- David also because he was completely red. We're told that he was ruddy in complexion. He had red hair, very much unlike his father. David was given the lowly task of a shepherd because they hoped that a wild beast would come and kill him while he was performing his duties. And for this reason, David was sent to the pasture in the most dangerous areas full of lions and bears. And when he told Saul that he could kill Goliath, he said, Saul, King Saul, your servant has killed both lions and bears. I can take on this uncircumcised Philistine. They had David shepherding in dangerous areas, hoping that he'd get killed. It's also reminiscent of Joseph and his brothers that hated him and wanted him dead. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 17, where David, before he killed Goliath, he comes to his older brothers in the field. And Eliab, the oldest brother, when he heard David, he was filled with anger against David. And he said, why have you come down? And and, and with whom have you left these few sheep you have in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down here to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. So you see, David was hated. He was despised by his brothers and the townspeople. So Jesse did not have a Jesse tree, a lineage all by himself. Jesse had a wife. There was a woman who provided her ovum many times over for Jesse's family tree, and her name was Netzvet. Her name is never, ever mentioned in all the Hebrew scriptures. Her name was Netzvet Bat Adel, a woman who would take a stand. That's what her name means. Now, think a thousand years later after this. Righteous Joseph from the house of David of Jesse's lineage would have been aware of this oral tradition about his house. Joseph's wife has come home after three months at Obedidim, where David had brought the ark. And she comes home and she's showing. She's been staying with her kinswoman Elizabeth for three months. And Mary was showing signs of pregnancy, of which Joseph knew with 100% certainty that he was not the father. They had never had relations. An angel would let Joseph know the truth. But Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. Did Joseph think about King David's mother, Netzvet? Like Netzvet, Joseph remained silent in all the scriptures. He doesn't say one word. Would his own situation be similar? A wife that's pregnant. Joseph's son, Joseph's a son of David from the house of David, he would have remembered the oral tradition, the story of David and his mother Netzavet, and David's seemingly questionable conception while Netzavet was separated from Jesse, who's the father. But the scriptures had foretold it. Lo, how a rose air blooming, a spotless rose, a rose of Judah, of Jesse's lineage coming, as men of old had sung. Isaiah thus foretold it. The rose God had in mind, with Mary we behold it, the virgin mother kind. Isaiah 7 said, Behold, a young virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
Mary was separated from Joseph after their betrothal while Joseph went to prepare a place for them to live. One day, an angel of the Lord came to Mary proclaiming the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So to the world's eyes, two questionable conceptions, 1,000 years apart, Nitzavet and baby David, and Mary and baby Jesus, son of David. The two humble Jewish women would keep God's secret a secret, God's gift a secret. Never named in the scriptures, Nezavet, but Mary, all generations will know her name. All generations still call her blessed 3,000 and some years later. Psalm 86, David wrote this about his mother, Nezavet. Turn to me and have mercy on me. Show your strength in behalf of your servant. Save me because I serve you just as my mother did. David says his mother served the Lord. Many of David's character traits are instilled by his mother, Nitzvet, who he lived with. Remember how David protected his parents during the war. We're told that in 1 Samuel 22, David went and took his parents to the king of Moab because they had ties, right? Because of Ruth. Pray, let my father and my mother stay with you until I know what God will do for me. And David left his parents at a time of great war and danger with the king of Moab. Now, Jewish tradition also claims that David made a mistake by moving his parents and trusting the king of Moab because David's parents were eventually killed in Moab, which would explain why David aggressively destroyed Moab after his reign over all Israel was established. In Psalm 51, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We know everyone has original sin, yes. But that night, when Nitzvit conceived, righteous Jesse remained unaware of the switch. Children should never be conceived in deception. And David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. Nitzvit told Jesse and the family what had happened after David was anointed king, almost 30 years later. It was the day of vindication for both she and her son David, who had been wrongly accused all those years before. Now, today we see in 2 Samuel 9 that David will show great kindness to Mephibosheth. Do you remember, we've met this kid before, when Saul's son heard that Abner had died at Hebron and his courage failed and Israel was dismayed and war was very eminent. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a, a son that was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan dying had come from Jezreel and his nurse grabbed him up and ran. And she was running fast and she fell and the child became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth, which means from the mouth of shame. Now, David is thinking back. He's the king of all Israel now, and he's thinking back, and he's remembering his friendship with Jonathan. And he says, is there still anyone left from the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant named Ziba. That's one of Saul's old servants. He's called to the king, and he says, is there anyone, is there anyone left that I could show kindness to? For the sake of Jonathan. And the king said, well, yes, there's Meshibbethet. He lives far, 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 far away at Amiel de, de Labar. That's very, very, very far away. He's lame. He's of no threat to you, King David. He's Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. He's absolutely no threat to you. He lives far, 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 far away, and he's lame. But David says, call him to me. And Mephibosheth comes, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell on his face, and did him obeisance. And David said, Mephibosheth, 
And he said, Behold, your servant is here. And David said, Do not fear. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore all the land of Saul your fa- and your father, and you will eat at my table always. Now, David knew firsthand the pain of not eating at his father's own table when he was a child and ostracized from the family. He knew that pain, being ostracized also as a mamzer, a stranger, an alien to his own family. He has empathy for this son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. What is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog such as I? This kid's no threat. I'm a dead dog to you, David. I'm lame. I'm crippled. In the wounding of his childhood, David too was a dead dog. We all are. We all have childhood wounds. David called Ziba, Saul's servant, to him and said, all that belonged to Saul and all that belonged to his house, I have given to your master's son. This is sheer grace. Mephibosheth gets everything, all Saul's estate, because he was a son of the king, and he is showered with something undeserved. He's a dead dog. He's undeserving. He did not work for it. It's sheer gift. And he is being invited to dine forever at the table of the king. This is amazing grace, because you are a son of the king. You are a daughter of the king, and you are showered with something undeserved as well. Like Mephibosheth, you were lame and crippled with original sin. You were a slumbering pup. Maybe not a dead dog, but a slumbering pup. But he revives you. And you have also been invited to dine forever at the table of the king. It happens right here at Mass. And when we are far, 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 far away, he wants again to invite us to be restored by sheer grace so we can once again sit at the king's table of sonship and daughterhood. And he does this through a priesthood in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, the son of David, in the line of Melchizedek, which David wrote in Psalm 110. And so Mephibosheth is invited to forever eat at the king's table. He shall always eat at my table. So we are all Mephibosheths. We eat from the king's table. Now, Mephibosheth went on to have Micah, and Micah will go on to have four sons. So he will carry on the lineage of King Saul's house through his grandsons, Jonathan's grandson. And it tells us Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. And I like that little line they added. Now he was lame in both feet because he's still lame. Mephibosheth was still lame in both feet, but eating daily from the king's table, which reminded me that we too are lame sinners, redeemed by grace, but we still limp. We're still lame from our sin, from our fallen human nature. So we really need grace continually through that sacrament. Always lame, but still a way to be forgiven, to repent, and still always invited to partake at the king's table. Okay, and then in 2 Samuel 10, the king has died. The king of the Ammonites has died. And Hanan, his son, takes over. And David says, I'll deal deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nashash, because his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. But the princess of the Ammonites said, do you think David is sending comforters to you and honoring your father? No. David has sent servants to you because he's spying out our city. It's espionage. He wants to throw us over. So Hanan took David's servants. He shaved off half the beard of each one. Now, shaving for a Jewish man, they have beards, long beards. But when someone died, they would shave the beard as a sign of mourning. That was part one of the second book of Samuel, chapters 9 through 11, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. 
To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.